Don't Miss a Beat is a podcast series brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear that covers views from diverse constituencies within the food, beverage, and agribusiness, also known as FBA, sector. Hosted by Jonathan Havens and Kermit Nash, co-chairs of the firm's FBA group, episode guests offer various perspectives on a variety of legal, policy, and industry developments, day-to-day FBA issues, best practices, and the road ahead. Thank you so much for joining us for our food, beverage, and agribusiness podcast series, Don't Miss a Beat. My name is Jonathan Havens, and I am the co-chair of both Saul Ewing's food, beverage, and agribusiness practice, as well as the firm's cannabis law practice. And I'm based in our Baltimore and Washington, D.C. offices. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Spencer Ware, who is a managing director with Riveron. He has over 20 years of experience in corporate turnaround and restructuring. I'm also thrilled to be joined by my partner, Steve Raven, who is a seasoned insolvency and bankruptcy attorney. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us in today's episode. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and prep for this episode. Would you mind sharing uh, a little bit with our listeners about your background? Yeah, sure. Absolutely, John. I've been, as you mentioned, in restructuring for uh, over 20 years now. I I started with a firm by the name of Zolfo Cooper when we had the the Enron mandate um, and then followed Steve Cooper over to Krispy Kreme and, and spent another seven years uh, Zolfo, before I went over to Alex Partners. Through the pandemic, I was an officer at, at JCPenney's and led a number of the retail situations. And about a year ago, I moved over to Riveron's practice in New York to lead the retail restructuring efforts, which has been a great opportunity. I've worked with the folks here you know, through the years before and have been more impressed by the, the leadership, the teamwork, and the execution, both on our accounting advisory side of the house and then with the legacy Conway McKinsey business focused on turnarounds and restructurings. That's great. So as our listeners know, this is a food and beverage and agribusiness podcast. So we're talking today about the food and bev industry in the post-COVID world, or we're trying to get to the post-COVID, I should say, (laughs) and the challenges that you see facing the food service industry. I think the common themes that we're hearing about, especially the news of today, is inflation, labor shortages, supply chain challenges, similar to the rest of the economy. Is that consistent with the challenges in this space, or is it different themes? Yeah, no, I would say those are the, the broad themes. However, it's, it's more nuanced when you bring it you know, to food in, and beverage. You know, we find that restaurants, tours, they need to be much more dynamic in how they approach their business. And now they're going to need to be you know, even more flexible than ever with their offerings, with their pricing, with their operations. Long gone are the days where you can just sort of you know, set and forget the menu and the model and then just focus on executing. You're going to need to be very flexible and very dynamic to navigate all of these challenges because they're going to constantly change. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. Can you, you know, you gave some great broad strokes. Would you mind drilling down a little bit and giving, some, giving us some examples of how this is happening? Yeah, no, I think, you know, a big thing that we're hearing you know, everywhere is labor. And this is a major variable cost for restaurants. And it's, it's something they're having you know, a hard time maintaining, right? We've seen everywhere from quick service to fine dining that restaurants are, are short staffed. They're going to need to think about how to navigate this. We've, we found that a lot of restaurant employees moved and pivoted over to the gig economy during the pandemic. And they did it for a few reasons. You know, restaurants were closed. They needed to find something to do. They found that flexibility more attractive 
right? They could work as much as they needed to. They could work when they wanted to. Um, and they had you know, changing demands at home. You know, th those with families, with children, they didn't know when the kids were going to be in school, were going to be out of school. And to navigate all of it, the gig economy became you know, very attractive. But now that we find there's you know, wage inflation, the, the turnover is tremendous. And look, when you walk into a restaurant, the fast food companies, they have their standard operating procedures and they train people up quickly. But even there, and even more so at the fine dining restaurants or fast casual, these are teams of people that figure out how to work together. And it's a bit of an, an orchestra. And this high turnover leads to tremendous inefficiencies, the training costs the, and the customer experience and the, the onboarding. So I really find that you know, restaurants are suffering. They're burning a lot of costs, finding people, training people, and then you know, getting rid of the, the efficiency. I mean, over the last six months, the number of times I've had meals and items comped because of just tremendously poor, slow service, I don't even need to ask about. It's something I haven't seen before. And this is hurting restaurants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So labor is definitely changing, both on the labor side of it and then how industry is reacting to the changes in labor. But what about inflation in general? Can you talk a bit about that and how it's impacted the industry? Yeah, I always find the consumer price index a bit misleading. It's about 7 or 8% year over year. But certain items will come in and go out to navigate that and manage that headline number. But a lot of food experts are noting that costs have risen more this year in the food space than they have in the past 40 years. It's eroding margins. People are you know, finding they're you know, having to change the prices. And the customers are seeing this, not just only in the grocery bills, but gasoline and and other places. And we just talk about the cost of food. There's a compound effect, right? The price of gas is increasing. We need to transport our food frequently across the country. It's going to get worse as the shortage of fertilizer comes in. People talk about you know, how a lot was produced in Ukraine and, and uh, Russia is about 28%. But one of the biggest ingredients, ammonium nitrate, 50% of ammonium nitrate comes from Russia, right? So you know, that's going to be even a, a bigger fallout. And that's just not our produce, but all the feed that the, the livestock eats, right? That's going to push through to the, the protein as well. So we're going to have continued inflation should be expected. People are trying to get um, ahead of this. You'll, you'll see, as I mentioned before, prices are coming up. I have been impressed that the fast food chains, I think they did this a few, you know, a few years ago, got rid of all the dollar menus and, and now they're you know, their value menus, right? Like it gives them that ability to just change costs more rapidly or change prices. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And beyond fertilizer, I've heard a lot of the wheat supply globally is coming from Ukraine as well. And so that's certainly having an impact. It's something we talk about here internally. Your point is an interesting one on the value menus. I was a big fan myself of the dollar menu. So I was a, a little upset to see those go away, but I certainly understand why. So, you know, it seems like fast food companies were getting ahead of this issue uh, a while ago. Let's talk a little bit more though about menus and menu costs. Obviously inputs are changing and labor is impacted, but what about menus and menu costs? Yeah, no, I mean, menu uh, costs are sort of a, a classic thing that economists talk about, right? The price the, is sort of the cost of changing your prices. But interestingly, some of the technology that's been adopted or more accepted, I would say, during COVID and other investments have made this easier than any other cycle. They talk about the you know, hyperinflation a long time ago in Germany, where they would actually change the prices and call it out you know, during the price of the evening and change the prices of beer pitchers so people would buy you know extras so they can you know, um, so, you know save on that. But now, look, the 
the, the fast food companies are all have digital menu boards, right? So they can rapidly pull things from the menu if they wanted to change the pricing. And it's not a massive effort to, to update everything and have it rolled out store by store. It's just a, a click of a button. But the other thing we've seen with COVID is the, the QR codes on every table. I think it's more acceptable now to have all or a good you know, part of your menus to be digital. And people through that and some scarcity you know, became more flexible, right? So they, they don't have to print out all their menus. People are just happy if they get a piece of paper rather than a menu board, which costs the cost of printing and updating. But they're going to be more flexible on, on what they're offering. And so you know, I think people are going to take advantage of that and pull items potentially from their offering at times. May I say, yeah. actually, I took a restaurant management course like three or four decades ago at the new school in New York. And I told Spencer this in the first night of the course, the first point that the instructor made was that restaurants waste too much money on expensive menus. And I don't mean the expense of the food, the preparation of the menu itself. So her point was, and this was many years ago before COVID, her point was, don't waste money on menus. So some things haven't changed. What's, what's old is new again. Yeah, I mean, I was going to make the point on digital menus. You know, uh, I practice in the regulatory space and we advise chain restaurants on compliance with FDA's menu labeling rule, the nutrition information, the calories, those sorts of things. And digital menus are obviously a lot easier to manipulate than paper menus and printed up big, expensive plastic boards. So I think there are some advantages to digital menus more than what we're just talking about. So back, Spencer, we're talking a lot about technology. I, I imagine there's expense with a lot of this technology. Is there an advantage for larger organizations in adapting and using this you know, technology to adapt? Yeah, no, you know, I think the larger organizations with their technology rollout, it's definitely you know, something they can leverage. However, when it you know, comes to food and beverage, I would say size definitely matters, but, but it cuts both ways. There's advantages to being large and the advantages to being small. You know, large organizations are going to have more purchasing power and available kind of brain power to navigate these challenges and get ahead of pricing or costs and how to you know bake it you know into their menu prices. They'll be able to think you know more you know globally on the supply chain and on labor, but smaller organizations are going to be much more nimble, right? To be able to you know, totally revamp their menus, pull items, take advantage of not just you're reacting to prices going up, but pricing opportunities. Maybe there's a, a decline in certain proteins and they could change their you know, menu to take advantage or you know, pull items and be more flexible on their hours. So, and then also one thing I think we'll see is when we talk about size of organizations, we should also think about size of portions. We've seen it in consumer products where inflation has hit both on the dollar, but also in the subtly in the size. There's less in boxes, there's less in cans, there's less in rolls. I think it's become less on your plate. I think people are going to be you know, careful and say, you know what, if we just you know, trim the size of this slightly, you know, we could save a, a lot of money as we you know, multiply this out. There are a number of tables, restaurants, and checks in a week, month, and year. And then I think the other piece where you're thinking about is the, the amount of food is shrink. Shrink is a big one. So when we talk about that in food and beverage, it's the amount of waste that you have. 
I've been seeing it more often. I'm sure you, you both have as well, where restaurants are just you know, run out of certain items. And I think that's strategic, right? They, they'd rather run out of something and not have the waste than just make sure they have a full complement and you know potentially have that food spoil. So I think people are going to be you know, much more thoughtful about their shrink. Yeah. Look, this has been really informative. I, I guess I would ask you, although you've already offered so much information, are, are, there, are there other things that stakeholders in the food and bev space should be thinking about here? Yeah, we've talked about labor. We, we've talked about food costs. And I just wouldn't assume that any of your costs are fixed. You know, don't hesitate to negotiate with you know, your landlords. You think about changing your suppliers as costs have been going up. People have been trying to pass these along, but consider your resourcing items, your cleaning supplies, your paper products. There's a ton of peripheral costs that are increasing and just don't simply accept those pass-throughs. It's going to be an interesting cycle for sure for restaurants. Hopefully they don't need to endure many more or any more lockdowns, but you know, regardless, there's, you know, need to be incredibly flexible, thoughtful, really be playing heads up ball as it seems our operating models are going to be on attack from all sides through, through this cycle. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's switch gears a little bit. Steve, it's obvious that Spencer has a ton of experience in this field. I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of his comments. You're a bankruptcy lawyer. What have you been seeing and what might you suggest to stakeholders? Well, thank you, Jonathan. I have been seeing a lot as the result of COVID, a lot more give and take than what used to be. It seems that the so-called debtor, let's say the restaurant franchise operation has more leverage than they used to have. And the landlords, the lenders, and the suppliers are a lot more negotiable than they ever were. And it's really out of necessity. They don't want to lose a customer, and they certainly don't want to lose 100% of what they may be owed. So in essence, they have to play ball. And the businesses, the restaurants, the food suppliers should not be shy in attempting to negotiate arrangements that will suit their necessities rather than running out of money. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So what suggestions, I guess, do you have for these businesses to help them better weather this storm? Well, I'll tell you, and this is, uh, again, not much different from history. A lot of businesses will wait until it's too late to help themselves. For example, where they may have money in their bank account to be able to work out arrangements, they may wait thinking that things are going to turn around, which they rarely do, without significant help. And the point is that if you see trouble or the early signs of trouble, hit the nail on the head and take care of things as best as possible at an early stage, rather than wait until there is no stage. Yep, that makes sense. So I guess in wrapping up, any tips to impart to our listeners or stakeholders? I'll, I, I don't want to repeat what I just said. So uh, that's really it. Don't wait too long. Don't be shy to negotiate. And uh, think more long-term than paying 100% of today's bill rather than stretching it out 
and staying in the game. Yeah, I liked what you said about the negotiating power and everyone's looking to make things continue to move along and, and make the trains run on time. And where it used to be that maybe you didn't have any negotiating power on negotiating rent or supplies, I think people are willing to play ball more. At least that's what I'm hearing from you. So that's great. Well, uh, look, Steve and Spencer, it's been a really great conversation. I told you when we, when we first started playing this out, it was going to go quick. We are at the end of our time here, but I really wanted to say thanks so much to you, to you both. Great insights, great experience, and practical tips for our listeners. So with that, I want to say thank you to our listeners, and we hope you join us next time on Don't Miss a Beat. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Spencer. It was a pleasure. Many thanks. Glad I could join the team on this. This is wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Miss a Beat, brought to you by the law firm of Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lear. Please be sure to subscribe to hear more podcast episodes related to developments in the food, beverage, and agriculture industry. 